Um, let me pray, and we're going to hit the ground running this morning. That's kind of how it's going to work today. Father, we love you, and we just ask that your word do what it does best. Change our lives. Lord God, it cuts both to soul and spirit. It never returns void. Lord, some of the hard things that are going to be broached today, Lord, let us take them on as people seeking to be pure like your son. Lord, bless us, I pray, through this three and a half thousand year old story. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, last week in Joshua chapter nine, like I said, ground running, we're on the go. Um, If you haven't been part of us, we've been doing a series in Joshua called Living Life Without the Fear. And last week we broached Joshua chapter nine. And uh, we got caught up in the detailing of our hero, kind of one of the heroes of the Christian faith, a really godly great man, Joshua, um, being deceived and duped by the Gibeonites. Basically, they tell him they came from a very far, far place and um, that they want to make peace with him. God had told him, no, don't make peace with the Canaanites because of their worship practices and who they are. And he gets deceived and duped. He doesn't ask God and basically gets deceived into protecting them and making a peace pact with them. Okay, so that was last, last week. They trick him and his leaders into this peace treaty. And we saw as a people that we too can be deceived. And that tragically, even more than that, we can be deceivers. Yes, we as a church actually sat and said, you know what, we can be deceivers. We can be deceitful at times. And so we really learned a lot through that passage that, you know, we sometimes are deceptive. Like the Gibeonites, we get something called Gibeonititis, the desire to deceive others, sometimes for gain, sometimes just for profile, whatever it may be, okay? And today we're going to continue through this divinely inspired book of Scripture and see the outworking of this treaty with the Gibeonites, okay? Joshua made a promise to them. And now we're going to see in Joshua chapter 10, the outworking of that promise. And so this treaty, as you see it worked out, the Israelites model for us, I believe, listen to this. The Israelites in this chapter model for us a life of victory in the promised land of life in Christ. What we've said again and again is that Joshua as a book in the Old Testament parallels the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. In the book of Ephesians, if you're not um, someone who's aware of scripture or you're only learning to come to church, the book of Ephesians is a book written by the apostle Paul in the first century to the church in Ephesus. And it's all built around the fact that once you're in Christ, once you're born again, once you're a Christian, you receive all these spiritual blessings. No, you don't become rich and healthy and wonderful, although lots of churches would like to tell you that. Part of that happens. Sometimes maybe, but mainly it's spiritual blessings, the joy and the knowledge of knowing you're in Christ. So Joshua, as an Old Testament book, parallels that. And Joshua coming with the Israelites into the promised land is like us enjoying the promised land of life in Christ. And I believe in this passage, God shows us through these words of what it's like to live a life of victory. And we'll see three factors that simply must mark our lives. They must mark our lives if we are to enjoy the spiritual blessings that are ours as new covenant members of God's tribe. We're part of God's tribe now, if you're a born again believer. Okay, we're the new Israel. Okay, speak to me later if that disagrees with something you think. Okay, well, we're going to turn straight to Joshua chapter 9, verse 26. I've entitled this Absolute Integrity, Personal Input, and Miraculous Intervention, all in a long day's victory. So Joshua chapter 9, verse 26. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites, and they did not kill them. That day, he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the community and for the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they are to this day. Okay, not today, but when the story was um, being inspired by God and written. 
chapter 10. Now Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and were living near them. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all its men were good fighters. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhiah, king of Lashish, and Debir, king of Eglon. Okay? That's why you go to Bible college. You don't learn anything else except how to say those words. And I probably got them all wrong if you spoke to someone who actually speaks Arabic or Hebrew. Okay, come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Okay, then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lashish, and Eglon joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us because all the Amorite kings from all the hill country have joined forces against us. Basically, they're in the serious, yeah, So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, I'd love to be part of that phrase. Okay, we're all going up, and you're one of the best fighting men. Be like, sweet, that's me. I'm in on that. That's what I hope us men want to be called, part of the best fighting men. That'd be great, wouldn't it? X-Men, warriors for Christ. Do not abandon your servants. So Joshua marched up. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I've given them into your hands. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. Nice way to be sent out. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them up by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, who defeated them in a great victory at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road, going up to Beth Horon, and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Makeda. As they fled before Israel on the, Lord, on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky, and more of them died from the hailstones and were killed by the swords of the Israelites. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in front of everyone in the presence of Israel, O sun, stand still over Gibeon, O moon, over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. As it is written in the book of Jashar, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a man. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. You see, what we have in the first six verses of chapter 10 is the plea of the Gibeonites. We have the Gibeonite plea. So I think the first factor that must mark us as we move on with our slides is absolute integrity. And what you have in the first six verses of the chapter that we're reading is the Gibeonites pleading to Joshua. Adonai Zedek, to put it lightly, is not too pleased by the peace treaty between Joshua and the Gibeonites. Basically, for me as a Liverpool fan, this is even worse than Michael Owen choosing to play for Man United. This is atrocious, horrific, backstabbing, whatever you can name. Far worse even than that, than the great Liverpool striker going over to play for Man United. This is someone who's part of this group of Amorites suddenly saying, Whoa, I think it's not going to work out. I don't want to try to withstand them. I'm going to make a peace treaty with them. Basically, he is miffed to the maximum and gathers four other Amorite heavies to open a can of whip butt on the defecting city of its people. He's like, yo, 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 bring your crew. Let's do this. 
So the five of them gather. They're all ready, all pumped, ready to take some on. And they're going to open a can of whip butt on this defecting city and its people. How dare they do what they've done, choosing to stand against us and to join these invading Israelites. And I want you to note this this morning, my friends, people of God. Sometimes this is Satan's ploy. Last week we looked at Satan's ploy being deception. And that the hiss of the serpent is more to be feared than the roar of the lion. But sometimes, my friends, there will be the roar of the lion. And sometimes this is Satan's ploy is an all-out offensive. Again, if this passage of Scripture is showing us what it is to live the life in spiritual victory, it's showing us that sometimes Satan says, you know what, the deception and all the little bits haven't worked. I'm going all out now to bring this person down. Ever felt like that? Everywhere you turn, life is beating it out of you. Everywhere. I don't have a job, but they're calling for my mortgage payment. And because of the stresses in my relationship, my wife and I are not getting on well. My kids don't understand what's going on, and I'm wondering about where I'm going to send them to school. And it just seems everywhere you turn, and my, my relationship with that person thinks I've said something against them, and I haven't, I didn't mean that. And everywhere you turn, it seems like it's all out offensive against you. But I want you to hear this this morning. Like Joshua responding to the cry of the Gibeonites, our Yeshua, our Joshua, Jesus, will always respond to our calls for help. He is remarkably faithful to his oath to never leave us nor forsake us. That's what Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He promises to be an ever-present help in time of need. He promises to be a firm rock. You read the Psalms again and again. We read about the firm rock, the solid foundation, and a mighty deliverer. So like Joshua immediately and faithfully responds to the plea of the Gibeonites, we can be certain that our Joshua, our Jesus, whenever we're in times of need, when it seems like Satan's on an all-out offensive to take us down, when we seem to be robbed of joy, of hope, of peace, we can call out to Christ. And by his spirit, he'll transform our situation. We must believe that. But then we have the response to the Gibeonite plea. The Gibeonites say this. They had sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. Now we're going to get into the heart of why I think absolute integrity is something that must mark us as followers of Christ. This is the perfect opportunity to display the great opt-out principle of selective amnesia. Sorry, no, I, I, I don't remember making any promises like that. And anyway, it was a big mistake. And now I've, 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 I've kind of just got over the shame that I had in front of all the people because I made a pact with the nasty Gibeonites who were just up the road and I thought they were miles away. No, sorry, I, I, don't, I don't remember making that pact at all. Selective amnesia or something I call discriminatory auditory deficiency, which is often displayed by Malachi or husbands. My son Malachi has this uh, discriminatory auditory deficiency. Yeah, or husbands. Sorry, I didn't hear you. Malachi, I told you nine times. I mean, it's amazing. He can hear, uh, Malachi, mom's just brought a chocolate. Wow, it's like a burnt trail on the wooden floor around my feet into the kitchen. Uh, Malachi, you need to stop watching TV. Come have um, some dinner. Malachi, you need to stop watching TV. Come, Malachi, Malachi, you need. That's called auditory, discriminatory auditory. That's what Joshua could have displayed. 
so I, 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 can't, I, can't, I can't hear the pleas of the Gibeonites. I, I, can't, I can't hear what you're saying. This was his time to opt out. This was his time to say, whoops, I made a bad decision, but now I can totally forget that I made it. I can opt out. But no, Joshua immediately, immediately calls his men to arms. And I want you to note something this. I want you to note this, Church of God, particularly those of you who are part of us and part of our family. The same men that Joshua says, let's go and do this, were the same people. Turn with me to chapter 9, verse 18. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders. Let me tell you something about grumbling. These same men that Joshua were able to call on to come and fight, to march overnight, were the same ones that must have been part of the grumbling. But listen to this. Don't grumble. Give grace. Pray for your leaders and get in on the mission. Because that's exactly what they did. They had reason to grumble. Their leaders made a foolish, stupid, disobedient, gullible, if we're being kind, using common PC language. They were disobedient. They didn't seek the word of the Lord. And they made a bad decision. And they grumbled. They were upset. They were groaning against leadership. There are times, let me announce it to you. Maybe I need to stand a little higher. Andy and I will make mistakes when we decide to make decisions. And you will probably grumble. Some of you are grumbling now. It's okay. Stop grumbling. Give grace. Pray for us and get in on mission. Because that's exactly what these soldiers did. Joshua responds immediately. He calls his men to arms and get this, overnight he embarks on a 32-kilometer journey from 1,000 feet below sea level to over 3,000 feet above sea level in one night. In his response to the Gibeonites, who he easily and maybe maybe should have left out there to be destroyed. But no, Joshua displays the great antidote to deception. In fact, he displays what I would say is this. Joshua displays one of the splendid internal graces of authentic Christianity, almost barren from our contemporary Christian ethos. He displays something that I think is almost barren from our ethos today as followers of Christ. Another author notes this, that he exhibits a commodity that is all too scarce these days. What does he display? What is this internal grace, the scarce commodity? Let me tell you. Integrity. Joshua displays integrity. And if you don't have integrity as a follower of Christ, that's a serious, serious, serious issue. Let me give you some synonyms for this wonderful ethic. Honesty, probity, rectitude, honor, good character, having principles, ethics, morals, righteousness, morality, virtue, decency, fairness, scrupulousness, um, sincerity, truthfulness, trustworthiness. Are you a man or a woman of integrity? Are you a man or a woman of honesty, probity, rectitude, honor, good character, ethics, morals, righteousness, morality, virtue, decency, fairness? You should be in a way that shames those that are outside the church. In a way that attracts those that are outside the church. We should be displaying integrity. Because we sure know who did display integrity. And that was Jesus Christ. And our calling is to become Christ-like. You see, Joshua knew that a covenant is a covenant. A covenant 
is a covenant. He had given his word even in the midst of gullibility and disobedience. But he would honor his oath. Does this mindset, this commitment, this stunning grace mark us? Does it? Whether it's sticking to the time we've agreed upon to meet someone and not imposing our tendency to lateness on the other, abusing their grace and saying in one sense that our agenda is more important than theirs. That's what being late is, my friends. I am more important than you, so you do everything according to my time scale. If you're going to be late, apologize. Simple as. Whether it's that or whether it's honoring a commitment to call someone when you say this afternoon before everyone leaves, I'm going to call you this week and ask how you're doing. Or whether it is fulfilling our word to help someone move house. Whether it's actually going to the prayer meeting when we said we would. Whether it's fulfilling every clause on our work contract, timekeeping, hard work, ethics. Or whether it's honoring the covenant of marriage. Integrity seems to have vanished from society. Or more tragically, and I want to do a series called Words That Have Vanished from the Christian Vocabulary. Words like awe. Words like integrity. It's tragic that integrity seems to have vanished from culture. It is infinitely more so that it seems to have vanished from the church in many, many contexts. Surely integrity should mark us, even set us apart as those wanting to live like Jesus. Do you know when Jesus displayed integrity? As blood was pouring from his brow in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he looked in the cup of his wonderful, loving fathers turning away from him and pouring all the wrath that needs to be displayed against sin, and him saying, now's a good time I could actually call on my divinity and get the heck out of here. But no, he displays integrity and he lives up to his word. I will be obedient to the Father. It marked Christ and we want to live like Christ. Listen to this and this is going to hit really close to home. I'm not sure if the rest has. I feel it has. But this is going to get even closer to home. Even if we've made a previous bad judgment call like Joshua does here. We must understand this morning the truth of this statement from a commentator commentating on this passage. You've gone too far ahead on the... Um, can a sin or wrong action be forgiven? Yes, of course. There is infinite oodles. That's probably the only word we can use. Oodles of God's grace. For each time we fail and fall. But consequences of that false step must often be lived with indefinitely. Greg, can I ask you to come up? Can a sin or a wrong action be forgiven? Yes, of course. But consequences of that false step must often be lived with indefinitely. A very relevant and penetrating context for this is in the area of marriage to an unbeliever. We make an oath in disobedience and gullibility. And then the going gets rough. The unbeliever lives exactly as he, she should live because they don't know Jesus. They don't have the power and the love of the Spirit of God. And the proverbial you-know-what hits the fan. Okay? Or another context is when you're married as two unbelievers, then you get converted and become a follower of Christ, but you're still married to an unbeliever. 
Paul handles this head on in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 through 14. Let me just read that quickly to you. 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 14. Okay, this is to those who are married to unbelievers. Typically, within the context, if you study the passage, they were both, unbe- they were both unbelievers at marriage, but one of them got converted because of the work of Christ in Corinth. Okay, he says this to them. To the rest I say this, I not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through a believing husband. And I love what Paul does here. This is about kids as well. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. We've all made bad decisions, my friends. But opting out. Okay? Two rights made an airplane, but two wrongs don't make a right. Okay? The wrong decision in disobedience, whether it were you're marrying an unbeliever, whatever that may be, or suddenly you get born again as a, and, and you're married to an unbeliever, the, the, the difficulties that come with it, please do not ever think that the option of opting out and violating God's command to not be divorced is part of making that situation right. It's not. Now, I am not saying that there isn't the context for when a guy is beating the heck out of you or you're married to a big girl and she's beating the heck out of you. I I don't know how it works out. That maybe you need to step away from that relationship. But I'm saying there there are such things as, as, as pursuing above all the honor, the glory, and the reputation of God is at stake. That's what it is. Listen to this. Dissonant or out of harmony, inharmonious marriage, loss of virginity, debt, Pregnancy out of wedlock, bad career choices or bad business deals made out of greed, whatever it may be, know this. Know this. God takes our mistakes and sins, mixes them with his abundant grace, and creates a wonderful recipe for his glory. The glory and reputation of God are at stake. God's glory and the honoring of your covenant marriage Your words, I will look after that child. Your commitment are more important than your discomfort. Listen how radically opposed to our current culture, New Testament theology is in this area. 1 Corinthians 6. Okay? You can't even go skiing in Europe or America without fearing, what if I slip and take someone out? They're going to sue me for all I'm worth and my family and they'll take them and... We live in a sue, a violate my rights, my rights culture. Listen to Paul. Listen to Paul as he's aware that God's glory, God's honor, the purity of the church are more at stake than us feeling out of sorts. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 7 and 8. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. What Paul is saying is, can you not trust in God enough that even if you are wronged, that he will somehow make a glorious restoration of that? But instead, no, I'll sue you for this. You parked in my parking space at view. You know that's mine. 
bang, take that. I'm never going to talk to you again. You, you said something about my children and the way that I bring them up. You spoke about my marriage and, and, and you drink wine and I don't. And oh gosh, it just goes on and on. Why not rather be wronged? For the glory of God is at stake. Integrity, integrity, integrity is so important. The great Scottish Puritan, Robert Murray McShane, you may say, great Scottish Puritan, I don't know what a Puritan is, I know what a Scottish person is, certainly don't know this guy, he was a great man. He made this distinguishing statement, listen to this, a man is what he is on his knees before God and nothing more. Absolute integrity is being that same man or woman publicly and being motivated by nothing other than the desire to live out openly who you are on your knees before the great living God. That's integrity. Get this. The public outworking and ongoing faithful living out of the great decision you have made in your heart to follow Christ and be obedient to his calling to holiness are paramount not only to your being an authentic Christian, but to the glory of God and get this, the salvation of those who don't know him. If we are people of integrity, if we are people that just seem to handle things in such a radically different way, the world will look in and ask, why? Why did you not sue him for all he's worth? He said something. Because we're different. The second element that we see in this passage, moving on, personal input. We read chapter 10, verses 8 through 13. He goes up there, do not be afraid of them. After an all-night march, Joshua takes it by surprise. The Lord throws him into confusion. He goes up the mighty hill onto Beth Horan and cut them down all the way. And he continues to fight. The second thing that must, must, must mark our life, if we want to live life without the fear, if we want to live a life of victorious obedience, is our personal input. We will look at the marvelous magnitude of this miracle in a little bit. God making the sun stand still. Okay? This miraculous intervention by a sovereign creator. But not before I've highlighted a pivotal element of living for Christ that is unveiled in the life of Joshua here. I want to highlight something to you. And this is it. It's a personal passion. We are inextricably, we can't be pulled apart from it. We are inextricably participative involved, active in our Christian life. We are part of the equation. Simon Lee Jones is part of what it is to live as a Christian, as Simon Lee Jones. We are not some zombie-like carcass or cadaver that is indwelt by an alternative being. We're still who we were, but just filled with the Spirit of God and desiring to live radically differently. Take heed of these thoughts. Listen to this. God's promises are never intended to inspire idleness, but fervency. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, he writes about the glories that await us. Because we're in Christ, we will receive a resurrection body. We will become part of the first fruits. We will receive the joy of eternal life. We will receive communion with God. We will be part of the new heavens and the new earth. All those things come to us. They're awaiting us. That's part of what it is, the joy, the wonderful promise and reward of being a follower of Christ. And how does Paul finish that? Well, now get your remote in your hand, your Budweiser in your other hand, and watch TV. No, he doesn't. This is what he says. With all those glorious promises to come, to come, to come, Paul says this. Therefore, my dear brothers, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Brothers include sisters, please. Brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. 
always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor for the Lord is not in vain. God will give us days of great victory, but we need to see the mindset, the determination, and the strategy of Joshua as he participates. Any of you interested in military strategy? Apparently, Joshua's strategy was phenomenal. The way he chose to take out that land is amazing. We will have days of great victory, but you need to see the mindset, the determination and strategy of Joshua as he participates in what God wants to do. God promises help and victory, but note the immense effort and sacrifice of Joshua and his warriors. They don't just stand there saying, Lord, help the Gibeonites. I'll pray about it. They're in there. They're they're walking 32 Ks overnight. They're rising 4,000 feet elevation in that 32 kilometers. Joshua didn't give the all too often used cliche or cop out. Let me pray about that. Oh, we laugh with real guilt. (laughs) And then remain inactive. He fought. He responded. Yes, he battles by faith, but he battles. Joshua, Joshua prays and displays eye-catching faith in the midst of this battle while gritting his teeth, bearing his sword, and attacking the godless foe. Yes, he prays, and he prays a prayer that the rest of us would not be willing to pray. Imagine me standing in front of the church. Would you? It's a really sunny day today, Lord. Would you keep the st- sun standing still? That's the kind of thing. Maybe if you want to. Could you? Publicly, in great faith, and in prayer. So he is a praying, faith-filled man, but he's a doing man. Joshua prays, he displays eye-catching faith, but he knows there's no such thing. Are you ready for this? There's no such thing as passive obedience in Christianity. There's no such thing as comfortable victory. There's no such things as casual spectators in this journey of enjoying the promises of God. There's no such thing. You can't be a spectator in this. There's no passive obedience, it's active obedience. Are you aware of that? Are you someone who constantly uses spiritual jargon to avoid your active participation in following Christ? You want a few? Let me give you a few I've heard. You ready? Thank you, Mod. I need to pray that God will make me wake up earlier so I'll get to work on time. What? Set your alarm, get to bed earlier, and use your willpower. I need to pray that God... Oh, come on. I have to trust the Lord uh, that I'll get some more time to study the word. I wasn't sure the Lord was leading me to church this morning. I've heard it. I've heard it since I've been, I've only been pastoring 15 months. I've heard it. I need to seek God to see if there's an area for me to serve in the church. Okay. I'd like to be more involved and expressive in worship, but here we go. But the Lord doesn't seem to have led the worship band to play the songs that I like. That's a reinterpretation of one I hear quite commonly, actually. You are radically personally involved in living out your faith. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your faith with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. We are filled with such a glory. We're going to get into that. Finally, one more factor. I've got five, eight minutes. Finally, one more factor we see in today's passage that should mark our lives as we seek victorious obedience, and that's miraculous intervention. Let me read verses 11 to 15 again. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon, 
the Lord hurled large hailstones down on him from the sky, and more of him died from the hailstones than were killed by the swords. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in front and the presence of Israel, O sun, stand still over Gibeon. O moon, over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on the enemies. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There's never been a day like it. My friends, you need to picture the scene. You need to picture. I'm going to read from James Boyce, one of our commentators. Joshua has climbed the hill to Beth Horon. Picture the scene that must have greeted Joshua as he crested the ridge at Beth Horon. Before him, as far as his eyes could see, were masses of the panicked armies being pursued by his own soldiers. Over the slopes and above the plains beyond, there was a great cloud from which hail was falling. To his right, the sun was beginning in its long afternoon descent towards the Mediterranean. Joshua must have realized two things. First, this was an unprecedented opportunity to destroy the southern confederacy. The best of their soldiers had come out against them and they were fleeing. If he could destroy them now, the Southlands would be open to his advancing armies. At the same time, he must have recognized that the day was escaping. When the sun set, fighting would cease and there would not be enough time before sunset to achieve total victory. So Joshua did an unprecedented thing. He just asked God to prolong the day. We must live, my friends, Certain that there is an imminent, he's close, almighty, world-creating, intimately involved God that interacts with the faith and prayers of his children and who intervenes miraculously in his sovereign wisdom in our lives. I could probably put the mic out for the rest of the day for men and women who come down here and share how God's healed them, God's restored them from debt, God's given them work when they thought it would never, it would just continue and continue and continue. Never forget, we live in relationship with an imminent, almighty, world-creating God. Turn to 2 Peter verses one, verses three, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 when you get a chance. We are filled with all that is necessary to live for God. Okay, I know some of you are going, Simon, you're not... Sh- Stupid, you might not be extremely intelligent. I, I don't think you're dumb. In fact, I know that you've studied and that you study quite a bit. Really? You really, you really believe? Joshua chapter 10. Really? Whether or not God was prolonging the darkness or the light, we do know that God had supernaturally intervened in the way he was keeping his promise giving his military help and providing the ideal atmosphere, conditions under which to complete the battle. There are four or five hypotheses about what actually happened here. There's even an irony in the fact that God controls the sun and the moon. Do you want to know why it's ironic? The Canaanites worship the sun and the moon. Now there's a God that says, you know those little kind of gaudy things you worship, the thing that shines, shines during the day and the things, Malachi's learning about how the sun, why is it night and dark, which is very complex. God says, well, I'm in charge of those two, so I'm going to just stop them quickly. They worship them. God literally mocks the power of their idols to show his majestic power for his people. You see, Joshua 10 is a divisive section of scripture. What I mean is it sifts out different categories of people. Let me give you three of those categories. Okay, next slide. Okay, the intellectually arrogant. 
We're children of the modernistic. My mind and reason is the ultimate canon and rule of truth. Because Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. Therefore I think, so everything else exists. What I think is the governing rule of what is true. That's called the intellectually arrogant. Therefore, I will cast aside the thought that God has divinely inspired Scripture because it just can't be true. And I say it can't be true. Therefore, it's not true. Let me adjust what the Scriptures say. Can I say this? And this may step on toes. This ideology is rampant in the leadership of mainline denominational churches. They do not respect the Bible anymore. Anymore. I've said to you, I've been to a, a, a conference in the United States where there was a debate between a Christian and a Christian, a Christian and a New Testament scholar, New Testament scholar teaching, New Testament theology. He basically said the Bible isn't true except for about 30% of it. He obviously believed the whole thing. The intellectually arrogant, okay? The ignorant, the ones that too easily believe urban myths and whatever is said because they're not willing to invest the time and energy to seek further depth in God's revelation. And the wise. These are those believers who seek to know all they can about God and his life and his life for us. But they are aware that reason must submit to faith. Let me tell you something about the, um, the guy called Augustine. I'm going to basically lay, I could put my, um, my house on this. We don't own a house. So, uh, he was far more intelligent than anyone in this room. Okay, Augustine probably wrote more that has influenced the church over one and a half or 1,700 years than any other individual. Okay, Augustine was in the 4th century. He was uh, uh, the, the um, Bishop of Hippo in North Africa, but was one of the most gifted minds ever. He had every right to say, I'm in charge. My mind's good. The Bible's a load of junk because it doesn't match up to what I believe. Therefore, I'm going to change the Bible. No, Augustine believed that reason can never be religiously neutral. We never think religiously neutral. Reason is not one independent approach to, the tr to, to truth while faith is another. Reason is a function of the whole person and is affected by our hearts, our passion, and our faith. Our minds are affected by what we already think about things or our minds are affected by what are our passions. As he puts it, faith seeks, understanding finds. Listen to this. Augustine embraced the dictum, credo ut intelligium. I believe that I might understand. If one first believes, understanding will come. Putting my life on the line here, the Bible says God did something to elongate the day. I believe that. I'll spend some more time trying to find out exactly what happened. But maybe I'm not meant to. It's not a science book. It's revelation. Two more things. We always come to Scripture with presuppositions. We already come to Scripture with our own ideas of who God is, what truth is, and what we want to believe. And that affects how we read Scripture, particularly Scriptures like Joshua chapter 10. Presuppositions have defined whole, whole Christian movements. There is no supernatural intervention of God. I was a part of a church in the United States that is a cessationist church. Cessationist. The gifts have ended. There are no tongues. There are no healings. There are no supernatural words of wisdom. They're done. Of course, they're telling the Scriptures that. The Scriptures aren't telling them that. But they're wise. They're, they're, they're um, intellectually capable. And there's a the final thing. Are you a big godder or a little godder? See, because if you're a big godder, you kind of try to come to grips with the fact he can do anything he wants because he's God. If you're a little godder, he is submitted to your definition of who he is. You put him in his little box and there's some things he can and can't do because you define that. 
Can I tell you, the ministry of John Piper took me from a little godder to a big godder. I was in love with what Jesus had done for me on the cross when I first was born again. I was kind of passionate then. But then I started reading John Piper, and my mind opened to the immensity, the grandeur, the wonder, the glory of who God actually is. And it therefore meant that any nice God would give his son to love me. But this God, the glorious King of kings and Lord of lords, the Holy One, whose glory is magnificent, whose glory fills the temples, who is above all other things, who created the earth in literally with words, he gave his son. And I became a big godder. And I'll spend my life in this church and wherever God calls us, if there's anywhere else next, trying to let people know we love a big God. A God who can make the sun stand still. Three things that need to mark our lives. Absolute integrity. Personal input. A miraculous intervention. I will blog. <laughs> kind of start going a bit uh, postmodern. I'm going to blog on the ethics of this battle uh, because I won't have time to broach it here. Because some of you might be asking, how does Joshua get to do so much damage and not be? I'm going to blog on that. That is my blog page. It goes directly through to our Facebook as well, X1 Watford on Facebook. So I'm going to blog on that. Okay, just to kind of give you an idea of why I think that's very different for us than saying, well, let's gather arms as the English Christians and just destroy every other faith. No. So I'll I'll blog on that a bit. But can I pray for us? Father, thank you for the stories of thousands of years ago that shape our lives, Lord. And I want to ask this morning that you would, by your spirit, empower us to be men and women of integrity. That a a watching world would be stunned. Lord Jesus, that you would, by your spirit, thank you that, yes, we work out our faith with fear and trembling, but you work by your spirit in us, Lord. Help us to participate in the calling to honor and glorify your name and to fulfill the Great Commission. And Lord, thank you that you miraculously intervene. Would you intervene for people without jobs in this room? Would you intervene for people with illness in this room? Would you intervene for people in difficult, horrific marriages who want to come running up to me right now and say, Simon, you don't understand. Would you intervene for them? And would you intervene in those who are still saying, I'm not too sure about this whole Christian thing. Lord, you're a God that if you wanted to, and if you did, and I'm not saying you didn't, and I definitely believe if that's what the scripture says you did, you're a God that can stop the sun. Surely you can do great things for us as we seek to honor you. We love you, Lord. Bless us today, I pray.